This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Martin Sprouse. Uh, we are conducting this interview in a, uh, Martin's warehouse in Oakland, California. And today is the 16th of November, 2013. Uh, I'll be assisted by my brother Bull, uh, who's sitting in. He may, may throw in a comment here and there. Uh, I should probably explain that the reason why I've elected to interview Martin, even though he has absolutely nothing to do with the city of Philadelphia, uh, is because, as I've mentioned in some interviews, um, when I was uh, 18 and graduating from high school, I got his, uh, the book that he edited, uh, Threat by Example, which I felt uh, had a very positive influence on me and kind of planted uh, one, one of many really crucial seeds that, that grew into a lot of projects that I later went on to do. And it was something I had in mind in, in doing this. So when I was coming out here to present the live version of Loud Fest Philly, I wanted to talk to Martin. So even though that he is not connected to Philly, I, I find that to be kind of a crucial element in this project. And I find him to be an interesting character who's done compelling things. So I wanted to have his voice be a part of the project. Hence, we are here. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Martin. Uh, so why don't you tell me where and when you were born? Born in 1966, outside of LA. Um, what sort of household were you growing up in? Like, what did your parents do? What was Mom worked for um, community service agencies that gave food and clothing to people in need, and my dad, he was civil service, worked for the Navy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then, what was the, the area like that you grew up in as a kid? Well, since he worked for the Navy, we kind of traveled around a little bit, but we spent most of the time in San Diego, Southern California. Okay. But we did some time in Connecticut, some time in Hawaii, but mostly San Diego. Okay. So young you, growing up around there, um, you know, what were your interests as, as a young person? We're going to talk about like, prior to any kind of discovery or interest in punk. It was music and skateboarding. Okay. Always. Right. <laughs> and yeah. then what, what sort of so music then, were, you, were you listening to? You know, well, you know, yeah. then it was like, this is like mid-70s, you know? So it's like Aerosmith, Van Halen, Van Halen's first album. Right. Nothing after that, okay. you know? Yeah. You know, any like 70s rock that just kind of was a little bit different, you know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, we were really, really young. And then skateboarding was just what we were doing at the same time. It's just typical Southern California stuff. Right. Was the skateboarding the introduction to, to punk and, you know, more out there culture? In some ways, yeah. I mean, because a lot of the skateboard kids got into punk really early on, you know, a lot of the famous skateboarders. But also just growing up in Southern California, it was just punk was everywhere. You mm -hmm. know, it was everywhere. In fact, I actually I was thinking about this yesterday. One of the first times I kind of came across from punk, we were skateboarding on this little ramp we made. And my next door neighbor's son, who went to the art school up here in San Francisco, this was... 70s he came down to visit his dad and he was 100 percent english sid vicious punk right this is like 77 78 probably 77 just crazy and i just like and he was the sweetest dude in the world i knew him before his punk and he had like a sit and they were like sid and nancy kind of thing he had a girlfriend there but they were really nice they were just art kids that got you know did he have punk. an accent did he adapt no no he wasn't it? that cheesy right he's not he was just like an art school kid and first generation san francisco punk but, you know, he had all the gear on, but he was a sweet dude. And I just like, what the fuck is that? You know? And he was, because he was a cool guy, he wasn't trying to be something other than that. I learned a lot from him. I still didn't know, couldn't deal with it. I was too young. But then he was like some, I think his major was film or something. So he was always filming us skateboarding and being punk at the same time. So it was like a 
nice introduction. It wasn't like, you know, several years later till I could actually fully understand what it was, but I just like, hmm, mm -hmm. it started making sense. Right, you know, I right. was way too young for it to apply it to my own life, but I just like, you know, that makes more sense than the stoner kids who listen to the same music as us and always wanted to kick our ass. You know, like this guy was like something else. You yeah, know, and it yeah. like, and just watching him walk around, just like, nobody knew what to do with him you know it yeah yeah it's great. hard it's hard now to kind of envision how how alien that the vision would be of somebody walking around yeah, and like this was like public. and it wasn't like wasn't comic book sid vicious it was like you know it's just like when the english influence was here but still had this like american art student look you know like a lot of kids had so it was like ripped clothing chains and probably had a safety pin so it was that but his hair was all fucked up and it's but and he was super tall and his girlfriend was had the same look and i just like and he just like, hey, Martin, how are you? <laughs> I was like, what? And then he's just filming a skateboarding. It was so good, you know? But, mm -hmm. but also just Southern California, everybody knew what kind of punk was, even if they didn't hate it. Even if they hated it, it was just, it was omnipresent, especially, you know, 80, you know, the whole time in high school, you know, the hardcore scene when, in Southern California was so huge, even though it was very small by today's standards. Mm -hmm. Just everybody kind of knew what it was, you yeah. know, so... So how did it begin to sort of seduce you into its uh, folds? You know, it's just friends. It's even peripheral friends. It wasn't even like super close friends. A couple of close friends got into it or started listening to it. And you just like, you know, you're, you have Van Halen's first album. Then you hear an early Black Flag record and you go, what the fuck? And then it starts making sense. Like you first hear it and you go, what? You know, mm -hmm. you hear the Clash first album and you're going, hmm. And then it just snaps, you yeah. know? It's like, oh, get it. And did you feel that these bands were kind of speaking to you in, you know, in a very particular way because of the, the politics or the angst or any of the yeah, know, any yeah. Of that business, right? Yeah, it wasn't so like, I'm gonna swallow this message and follow this band. It was way more, it just made sense. It was very anti-authoritarian, mm -hmm. which just made sense to what we were doing. It wasn't really articulate. It was just an instinctual feeling. It was just, I think for me more than anything, it was just the anti-bullshit thing. Right. Like, even then, you know, then you, you know, after listening to like, just later on, you compare Black Flag to Van Halen's first album, one's bullshit, <laughs> you know, even though all, all the skaters were listening to Van Halen's first album, like when it came out, you know, but then you listen to something else, you're like, hmm, that's gone. This yeah. is it. You know, right. and this makes way more sense. And it's just like the, you know, at the time when everything was just real, it was just like kids doing their own thing, you know, and also you know, Southern California, especially San Diego, was a really violent place, you know, we, you know, and it was just kind of nice to be attached, not just the punk scene, just the culture in general. Mm -hmm. It was just nice to have something where you kind of felt like your, your group, you're alienated and you're alienating yourself even more by joining this. But then at the same time, you kind of all stood together. It was kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. So you felt welcomed into the community. Sometimes. When yeah. You, I mean, we were young kids, you know, like the first generation punk rockers, you know, we kind of came from the skate punk thing. And then older generations which happens everywhere is like you know they're more art students way heavy into the drugs and stuff you know mm -hmm. right. so there's always like generational clash but there was acceptance definitely right you so know, you kind of came in with a wave of the more hardcore you know, yes stuff, yes right? you know we had listened to a lot of the like the 70s punk and those bands but like 80 on hardcore made total sense yeah, yeah. Way since like, you know, all the English bands were great to listen to and it made sense. It helped the transition from rock to this. Yeah. But like fully just like, this is our thing without even saying that you just find yourself in that was hardcore. Sort of Southern stripped California. down of the artifice. You find like this, 
you know, the, the core of what you... Yeah, it just, and it, again, it was all really instinctual thing. Like, we were all smart dudes. You know, we weren't fuck-ups, me and my friends, but it just made a lot of sense what we were doing. It wasn't like, hey, let's all do this, or, hey, let's, you know, it wasn't like following something. It just, it just was there, and it was super real. And also, early 80s in Southern California, it was about as real as it got, yeah. you know? And it just, it just seemed like... That's what we were supposed to do. So were you at these shows where you'd see like hundreds and hundreds of people with a giant circle? That was later you know, on. Like another yeah. state of mind or something. <laughs> Those shows like, happened, definitely. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that was like, those were huge by that standards, but small by today's standards, you know. But yeah, mm -hmm. there was certain L.A. shows where, then there was, a, you know, seeing the Misfits with 50 people in L.A., okay. you know. It was, it's the same kind of thing, you yeah. know. It's like. Those big shows were cool, but they're also just like, that's when you kind of lost interest. And the smaller shows, even though a lot of them were sketchy, but that was, those things were really great too, mm -hmm. you know? And it just made an instant community, even though we were like, and San Diego punk scene was definitely in the early days, was violent as fuck. It was crazy. More so than LA. Were there gang factions in there? I mean, there were, were, there were the suicidals kind of? That's happened? LA. Yeah. That's later. All right. So, but this was, San Diego is notorious. This is pre all those suicidal gangs, but those kind of came in like mid eighties, you mm -hmm. know, suicidals, lads, what was all those other dudes? God, I hated all those guys, but not, there were some good guys in all those, but there was a lot of those punk hardcore gangs. But in San Diego, we had SDSH, San Diego skinheads. Mm -hmm. This is before white power Nazi skinheads. Okay. They were so like, they're not politically affiliated in any no, way? No, they were just like these brothers and just thugs. Brothers in a literal sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they were like Latino dudes. They all dress like bikers. So they're Latino skinheads. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's not English skinhead. It was just like thug skinhead. Yeah, SDSH, yeah. Arturo. He's still around somewhere. And they were just like the meanest motherfuckers in the world. In a crazy way. But they were at every punk show. So we had to deal with them. Right. You know, they were kind of all right with us. But at the same time, that Arturo dude. You know, we just they just started so much shit. And yeah. Just because a lot of like ex-Navy guys and ex-military guys got into the punk scene in San Diego. And San Diego was just violent. Punk bands that came down there got beat up. There's always fights between the local crowd and the bands. There's the great stories of uh, Youth Brigade, UK subs coming down there, big fights. And then there was a time there where every band from LA was getting beat up by San Diego audiences. <laughs> it was super fucking bummer. But at the same time, there was tons of great people there. And we were welcomed by a lot of the older generation that were into what we were doing. Even though, you know, we didn't do, we didn't shoot speed. We, you know, we didn't like a lot of the same music because we were younger than a lot of those people, but there was some common ground. And it was just so small and crazy and you're young. It just all kind of, even that kind of made sense. Yeah, yeah. But we had enough of us that we never felt like we didn't hang out at all those people's houses, but we saw them at shows. And, you know, there were a couple of close calls where, you know, they wanted to kick our asses because we were the young kids and they thought we were trying to take over the scene. Right. And then it all worked out, you know? Mm -hmm. What yeah. year was it when you started going to these shows in earnest? Those are all early, early 80s. Okay, yeah. right, right. And then did your parents have issues with young you going to these crazy punk things? No, my parents are, they're, they're crazy because they both grew up on farms in the Midwest and they were like very accepting of everything. They trusted me and my sister a lot. They kind of raised us as like they were hippies, but they don't even know what hippies are. They're like, go out, you got to figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. Like very little advice, but a lot of care and love and trust. So, right. and I guess if you comport yourself in a certain way, you kind of prove to them that like, okay, this is uh, worth yeah, investing the. Yeah, and I mean, we were like still in high school. We we're like, you know, 
15 years old and you know and they're learning about punk through us but like punk band stayed at my parents house you know and when we started doing our fanzine leading edge which was in 83 we started that why don't you talk about that what was that all about i mean was it you it was you and other people yeah me and my friend pat weakland started it and then jason traeger who's a good friend still and so is pat then jason kind of came down why we're still putting the first issue together that was just us wanting to do something you know we you know, none of us wanted to be in a band. I couldn't, I didn't have any inkling to be in a band. Right. So we just thought, hey, let's just do a, a fanzine, you know, and that's how everybody communicated mm-hmm. back then. So. Were you trying to express any particular ideas in the Yeah, in the of fanzine? course. You know, it's this, it wasn't like us, like a younger generation versus older generation, but it came off like that, you know. Mm-hmm. It, was, it wasn't saying we were better, but we were definitely not into, like, the fighting and all that shit, you know, it was nuts how much fighting there was. And we weren't into that shit. We weren't trying to make it a hippie punk thing either, but we we're just like, fucking don't fight, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, but at the same time, we had a lot of common ground, you know, it was very, you know, the cops used to be like the worst enemies besides, you know, the cops were the worst enemies of punk rockers in Southern California back then. So, you know, very anti-cop, very anti-authoritarian, mm-hmm. you know, very much like sticking together type of thing. Right. So, yeah, and just a lot of the bands we covered were kind of new hardcore bands, where some of the older San Diego speed, you know, fucked up punk shit was, you know, not really our thing. Right. So but, you, you never had an, an interest in the, or moved into, like, the drug scene in any never. capacity or anything like that? Never. Okay. Yeah. Never. It's just a lot of us. None of us were. And it wasn't when we, like, heard Minor Threat or Straight Edge, and it, that kind of like, oh, that kind of makes sense to us, too. But we kind of... Growing up in San Diego, you know... You just, I guess if you see the examples, like, if you do this, you look like this train wreck over yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, and when we were skaters, even before punk, we weren't like this, you know, a lot of the skaters were like those hardcore stoner dudes. And I'm just like, God, that's just something about that didn't make sense to me, mm-hmm. you know? But at the same time, we weren't like church goody-goody kids or like, you know, like we were trouble, you know, the idea of being troublemakers and not being all fucked up, just like what was happening in D.C., but it was just kind of organically happening. It was just young kids making decisions mm-hmm. or making, you know, just instinctively not taking part in things, but still hanging out with kids that did that. It wasn't like our little gang, you know, everyone hung out together because it was so small, but no, we didn't do any of that stuff. That just kind of happened. Right. There was no X's or anything like that, but mm-hmm. it's just like three or four of us too. Right, right. You know, it was like, there was no army, you know, this was Mm -hmm. small. I I went to the largest high school in San Diego and there was, you know, when we finally got into punk, there was like two or three of us, four of us maybe. But again, a lot of peripheral people knew about it too. Yeah. And were you wearing like a lot of, like the more outward trappings of punk? I mean, did you, were you sort of kitted out to to some degree? You know, in Southern California had that kind of skater, you know, t-shirt, jeans and we all wore these shoes called winos, you know, these black, it was such a West Coast, West Coast, Southern California things, these one black shoes that every, all the kids wore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then shaved heads and stuff, but it was pretty simple, you yeah, know? Yeah. But, you know, some friends would have spiked hair or some, it was just, that's how it was. You know, a lot of the girls were super more punk looking, you know, it just, it was just everything at once, mm-hmm. you know? But for me personally, there's probably a couple embarrassing photos, but I wasn't super geared up. No, it was more <laughs> right. s- simple, straightforward. Yeah, but, it, but we looked punk back then. Now we would just look normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we kind of stood out. Yeah. Yeah. How long did you do the zine? We did five issues. So it was leading edges from 80. We started in 83 and it stopped. 
right when I moved up here was 85. Okay. So, so what brought you here then? Maximum Rock and Roll. Okay. So we used to come up and visit. Um, we were, you know, like back then we were friends with pen pals with a bunch of people and Bones, who was in this band CIA from Connecticut and later in 76% Uncertain, he came out here with some other friends and I hooked a ride with him and we drove up to Berkeley to visit Max Marconola in San Francisco and then me and Tim Yo kind of hit it off. Mm -hmm. This is in summer of 83, uh, maybe, four? Yeah, so Tim Yo clearly significantly older than you. He was 20 years older than me. Right. And yeah. still it felt like, a, you know, this was a, a bright lad or somebody that was, you know, same-minded in some way or something. Yeah, I mean, Tim Yo was a, we were definitely way different, but we were both workaholics. Mm -hmm. Even at a young age, like, the zine was really what we did and really what I did. You know, like, that was like a project, very project-oriented and just work all the time on it, you know, to try and do something with it or just create something, mm -hmm. you know? So me and Tim had that. But the original idea was for me... Jason, who we worked on Leading Edge at the time, Pat kind of left after a couple issues and started his own zine. And um, Bessie Oakley, who's from Reno, kind of with the Seven Seconds people, and she was with this group called Positive Force. All three of us were supposed to come up here, take over Max Mark and Roll, so Tim Yo could start opening a club. Oh, I never heard that before, yeah. Yeah. That's, so what ended up happening, Jason bailed, uh, Bessie bailed, not bailed, they just decided to do other things, so I came up alone. Mm -hmm and moved here and kind of helped, didn't take over Maximum by myself because Tim Yo would never give it up, no matter what he would say. But yeah. you know, I became a huge part of the magazine. And then ironically, you know, the club kind of came soon after that, which was Gilman. Mm -hmm. So, but the main reason was, so the, the Gilman thing was a seed started kind of 84 probably, okay. when we were coming up here and visiting a couple different times. Right, and what year did Gilman open was at 80? Eight, eighty-seven. Uh, New Year's of eighty-seven, I think, or eighty-eight. Okay. Uh, eighty-seven. Yeah, because I moved up here in eighty-five, so it had to be New Year's of eighty-seven. I hope I get that right. That'd be kind right. of embarrassing. It's no, that's that's. But I'm, yeah, I think it was something like that. So it happened pretty soon after. You know? So you played a role in in Gilman then. Yeah, I mean there was a. That was before it was kind of a community outreach program, you know, that really was a part of it. But it really kind of started with. This one guy, Victor Hayden, who was involved with Maximum, and had involved really good friends with Kamala, mm -hmm. and they had put on shows before, and he was this eccentric artist, super mystery dude. He actually, what was the name? He started a record label later on. God, I can't even remember it. Sweet, sweet, sweet dude, who was, we think was closely related to Captain Beefheart. Wow, wow, really? Yeah, like, yeah. super eccentric, super secretive, but he really loved putting on shows, and he was... And I love that dude. He was such a real character. Mm -hmm. Kamala will have amazing stories about him, but he's super funny. But he actually was always kind of looking for the place, and it was kind of peripheral. I remember even before I moved up here, the Maxim House was in Timiskel over in Oakland, and Tim was moving the Maxim House to San Francisco because he wanted to expand it and get out of this small house. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this is before I moved up here. Why it was happening in those months before, he was actually looking for places that were warehouse below and living quarters near and have a huge compound. So that was all kind of started. Right. But he couldn't get it together. The buildings were too weird. So he just found a house in San Francisco over in Nui Valley, and that was the new Maximum house. But So Victor Hayden was always working with Tim and kind of driving around looking for places. And Victor Hayden's actually found Gilman, the place that it's at now. Mm -hmm. So, 
And in setting up Gilman, did, did the individuals come together with a certain set of, uh, of ideals that they wanted to be the kind of the core of what, what, what differentiates it's this very club from everything else? Very simple versions of it, you know, very simple. Like, and it started out with a lot of just maximum people or peripheral maximum people. And then when we found this East Bay thing, then it started doing, we started flyering all over the place, bringing people in and started doing meetings mm -hmm. and bringing in, and it became diverse right away. Right. So almost like a co-op in a sense. I mean, in the sense of the equality of voices or? Always, no? yeah. Okay. I mean, Maximum funded the thing. You know, Maximum had the money, especially back then. Even though Maximum didn't sell for a lot of money and the ads were cheap because the economy was different, Maximum had money. And also because nobody on the magazine took money, Maximum was able to bankroll things like that all the time. So okay. Maximum helped get a lot of it started. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't Timio. That was just Maximum as a thing, not Timio personally. Um, but then, yeah, it, it instantly became a community thing. I remember meeting people from, you know, that's how we started meeting all the Berkeley punk kids started coming in peripheral, like kids from the people in the post-punk scene, a little bit older people started coming in because it was like a community center. Mm -hmm. Some of those flyers before, I think right when we signed the lease, it didn't open for a while. We had to do work with the city to get it all set up and build stuff. Inside, there was a lot of like community outreach flyers that are pretty amazing. It just it was really trying to be diverse. It wasn't just like punk club. Right, right. It was community center. So, but some of the basic ideas was run by the people for the people kind of thing. Right. That was the main idea and trying to do things differently. And you know, there were some basic ones like you know how things would be handled financially and what we were trying to do. And it wasn't going to be any paid people. It wasn't going to have like a staff and other people work for them. And then from these meetings, things became even more crazier. And I think. At the very beginning, you know, it was experimental. Like there was a thing where we didn't want to tell anybody who was playing. Oh, for any of the shows? It was really fucked up. I think that lasted like a half hour. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> that was the, like the, on the idea first being show. what? Like you should, if you support the scene, you should just come. Yeah. Right. And so that's it kind of requires like this, a lot of individuals. <laughs> yes, and that was you know you can see that that was kind of like that was a long time ago, and you can kind of see some of the older people kind of doing like the mind fuck kind of things, trying to do some, something different and interesting, which was great. Practicalities, it was really hard and it kind of sucked and it didn't really make sense. Yeah. But I think we tried it. I think the first show, nobody knew who was playing, but then it just immediately turned out like the people booking the shows know who it is and then everyone shot it down. But it was, yeah. that was super valid. As, as funny as it is, it's still an interesting concept. It was a little controlling. So, but ultimately it got voted down and for good reason, but nobody regrets that. It was kind of, something like that. Then a lot of like the bands had to work to play. It was like trying to bring the bands off the stage, you know, even though the bands are bringing in the people and stuff. But, you know, mm -hmm. I remember bands had to like volunteer positions before they could play there and stuff like that. So it's experimenting. A lot of that came out after the meetings and stuff started developing, mm -hmm. you know, so there was a, a lot of initial ideas, but all this other stuff came out after. There wasn't that much right. initial stuff other than run by the people and also just no violent, you know, the violence thing and right. just always all ages. I imagine always no, no booze, yeah. you know, nothing like that, mm -hmm. nothing. And, um, no tolerance for any, any fighting. That was really great because back then, back then it was kind of a gnarly time for like skinheads and assholes. That was like the racist white power skinhead yeah, stuff. Yeah. Late eighties. You know? That was really yeah. kind of kicking this, the gear. Yeah. And Gilman didn't have bouncers then. You know, later on, some of the punk kids that knew how to fight became bouncers, and then they beat the shit out of the Nazis, and they never came back, which <laughs> no, was a beautiful good. thing. <laughs> yes. Super beautiful. <laughs> back then, we weren't really fighters, but we stopped 
if a skin, you know, we would never let any skinheads in that were wearing any bullshit. Like this was when kids were coming from like the rich suburbs wearing screwdriver shirts, mm-hmm. like no way. But then it was like a lot of like high school punk kids that were kind of keeping them out. It was mass, it was like mass blockades. I remember having a lot of blockades at the door. That was like, it sounds so long ago, but it's like a clubhouse keeping the assholes out. It was oh, like yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. And back then that neighborhood in Gilman was desolate. It's like desolate warehouses. Even though there's microbreweries across the street now, it was desolate warehouses in a working class neighborhood that was close by that was not really into what we were doing either, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so the no violence thing, that was something that was really inter- organically developed. I remember the meetings before we opened, the people were saying we should have a rack of baseball bats because they all knew the skinheads were coming. And I was yeah. like looking at some of the people that were advocating that. I was like, dude, you never hit anybody with a baseball bat before. <laughs> right. I actually think, you know, I'm all right, you know, it just didn't work, but we went back and forth. And then what organically developed is like the main thing everyone agreed on is it's not going to happen. So if a fight broke out, lights went on, whole crowd surrounded the people, they shoved the assholes out. It wasn't always that cut and dry, very complicated, messy. But the main thing is the assholes never won. Yeah. And this is, this is, seems like a very serious, like a very simple idea to, to be, to employ, to kind of deal with that problem. And it doesn't seem to have been employed very well across the country and other places. I mean, I mean, I come from shows where, where a very small number of people could cause a lot of chaos. and they were in San Diego, same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you just like, wonder, why do all these people who hate them not just physically remove it from this You know, space? why do people not stop assholes from doing shit on the street now? You know, it's But like, yet you managed at Gilman to, to set the precedent for that and then move forward with it, which was an effective I think it finally came in like this was our place. It wasn't run by a promoter. And yeah. we weren't protecting like punk shows. This was like really organically this is their place mm-hmm. so you had to defend it you know and that's what came out of that and again it wasn't like didn't make sense to everybody right away but it definitely happened and it was really fucking beautiful and this was like this wasn't like some gandhi no violence thing but there wasn't violence because nobody was beating the shit out of these people right, right. Like, like again that came later which was another way to deal with it you know which was really i support what happened with gilman then too you know this was more just like the whole crowd doing it. And it was really, it was really good. And also just watching some out of town bands kind of getting thrown off when shows getting stopped. But then it was like, fuck the out of town bands. We're dealing with these guys. You know, like, dude, we're up here to play. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, but this no, is no. your life going forward. Yeah, you know, we don't give a fuck about you. We care about this asshole and he's getting out and you're not going to play until he's out. Yeah. It was really like that, you know? But it was every Friday and Saturday we had confrontations like that. It was a kind of a new wave of assholes coming into the punk scene yeah that really they never and then san francisco assholes coming out of the woodwork coming over to gilman you know it it was it was gnarly but then they all got dealt with and what's the most amazing thing gilman's still there and still run by the kind of the for the most part the same ideas you mm-hmm. know and again not to really romanticize what happened but when they brought the people in that beat the nazis up that was beautiful Nazis never come back. (laughs) We didn't have that much luck. We had repeated Nazis. They never got in. They never won or got in, but we confronted them in a different way, and then they finally got their asses kicked, which was... That's great, yeah. Yeah, Um, no problem. Yeah, much better than a pacifist approach. Well, we kept them out. They didn't, didn't, you know, used to see Nazis, you know, just assholes, just ruin every punk show, or even just ruin a set or anything, you know? That didn't happen either, so... That, you know, beating them up and making them fear coming to Gilman was a long-term thing, but they never even did it another way. And it, was, it wasn't pacifism, like everyone was sworn to not 
fight it was just mass numbers of people dealing with this like you'd see in a demonstration or something you know mm. it's like if a cop's beating the shit out of somebody then the crowd surrounds the cop mm. and the cop can't beat the kid up anymore right yeah the crowd wins the cop loses it was like that mm -hmm. the cop being the asshole <laughs> yeah, no, I got you. Yeah. So in dealing with um, a lot of people with probably very diverse voices and probably very distinctive personalities, considering this is the, the Bay Area. Yeah, very much. How, how did, did people gel well enough together to be able to kind of move these ideas forward? Or were there always kind of people, you know, throwing really... Yeah, it was crazy. You know, it wasn't really super diverse, like someone trying to hijack it and to go somewhere. But, you know, there'd be... There's also a volunteer thing, so someone that, you know, decisions that were made three months ago at meetings, we had, I think we had meetings every Sunday afternoon, a new group of people would come in, they'd try and bring up these old subjects, and it was just like that painful thing, painful democracy, like, yeah. but it worked. But yeah, there was a lot of like, even at the beginning, older generations of people wanting to come in and wanted like, like a hypothetical thing, like a major label pop band that used to be punk in 77 come and play and we're, you know, working through all those things. So there was diverse things, but nobody was like radically trying to do different things. And, you know, then splinter things happened. There was like, lack of a better term, it was like alternative night where a lot of those bands played, not so much the major label ones, but non-hardcore bands that were still very legit, very independent. And then they were done on Sunday, so a group of people splintered off that really liked Gilman and took care of it and did some amazing work, brought those bands in and, and put on those shows, all falling under the same guidelines or you know established stuff that we had before. So going back to Maximum Rock and Roll, then you wound up playing a role in Maximum. Yeah, definitely, more so than anything. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what did you feel that your contribution to Maximum was? I mean, did you want to see... Make it, it look better? <laughs> <laughs> so you were doing design work for them? Well, I mean, I just learned from doing Leading Edge. And, you know, what's really great about Maximum, there was a huge staff of volunteers, really great people that had been with the magazine. A lot of them came from the radio show before it was a magazine, you know, and just knew Tim. And Maximum was run by the same way as Gilman was, you know? Mm -hmm. And Tim was always the main organizer, and there was a couple other people that were coordinating things. But there was a lot of volunteers, I think... All, came over all Sunday afternoon and did layouts and stuff and it was very much that thing and then Tim you always made this joke that I came in and everyone quit <laughs> which is I'm only saying that because it's partially true was it's it not, because you were doing the bulk of the work or yeah. I mean it wasn't like a personality thing no everyone loved like, me <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. no it was like me and Tim workaholics and like all the layouts were done yeah and then you know because I was I think we were all living at the Maxim house at the same time it's like this two-story house and we had you know there was four people living there and the office was there and so shit was just getting done so it's just maximum was changing and i was very eager you know i made a conscious decision to stop doing leading edge when i moved up here i wasn't going to keep doing it but i had you know leading edge and maximum were really different and i had definitely a lot of ideas of what to do and wanted to change maximum not the message but just like you know i didn't like you know graphically it was kind of sloppy and just trying to do different things and everybody was open to that but the structure of maximum definitely changed when i came there it's kind of like me and tim doing coordinating there's still a lot of volunteers from all over the world that made that magazine happen but the day-to-day -day stuff the crew got smaller and smaller mm -hmm. you know yeah. well if you were taking on all this work what, what were you doing for a job at that time i was working for this company called systematic distribution it was one of the like independent record mail order services over in San Francisco on Folsom Street. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of those back then. And they had di uh, distributed Leading Edge back then. And they did not just punk stuff, they did all kinds of independent stuff. They were really, really good people and they hired me. I knew them before I moved up here and they hired me to run their mail order department. Mm -hmm. 
And then I got fired from that job. How, why did that happen? Because they were a little bit older and they weren't really in the punk scene and I'm cool with all these people. Like this is, I'm still friends with a lot of these people that work there, but they started importing screwdriver records. Mm -hmm. Screwdriver being the Nazi band, but these were pre-Nazi screwdriver records that someone else in Germany was, you know, when screwdriver first started, they were just a punk band. They yeah, there's like Nazi an EP band. or something, right? Where they're yeah, it wasn't just... all screwed up, but it was some kind of, some kind of weird bootleg 12-inch stuff, you know? And they're going, this is a punk screwdriver. You know, I was like, dude, you can't do that. You're going to have nothing but fucking Nazis ordering this stuff. You're giving Nazi stuff. You're taking Nazis money and doing this. Even though I understand what screwdriver was and I thought old screwed up was a great album. I understand. And they broke up and became Nazis. But you can't do this. This is bullshit. And then there were just skinheads calling like, you got screwdriver. Give me fucking screwdriver. I was like, and I just fucking made this decision like I'm not boxing any screwdriver records so they were all skinheads all Nazis wanting screwdriver records and they were all coming to the mail order department right, right. they only did this once and it was a huge problem between me and them and that was it whatever it was yeah. not maybe the best way to handle it you know but they were refusing I was mad because I go you guys don't go to punk shows you don't know what Nazis are and I understand what we're doing and we understand they're not you're not selling Nazi records as a one time thing but it was it was a little thing that was I guess it's certainly facilitating people moving in a direction that's ultimately going to be corrosive to your community, you know. Dude, doing any interaction with Nazis, especially from people that didn't, you know, I think that's kind of how things kind of happen. Like, oh, you know, we're just music guys. We're just bringing in these records. We don't know. That's how Screwdriver, you know, some of the racist Screwdriver records showed up in record stores. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why are you selling those things? You know, why are you giving money to that? Why do you want those people in here? You yeah, know, those like, are the record store people. Like, you know, if there's some old hippie, they're not going to know what the Yeah, so it happened. And not these guys weren't like that. These guys knew what the deal was. And it wasn't like a conscious effort to start selling screwdrivers. I think someone just sent them the records and they made a conscious effort to sell them. It was seriously not that many records, but it turned into a big deal. And that's why I no longer worked there. <laughs> you know, they got yeah. pissed. And I like, I stood my ground. I was like, I'm not... I think we could have dealt with it a different way, you mm-hmm. know, but we all made our peace, but I'm not into people selling any fucking screwdriver shit at all, especially then. That was in 85. It was just like people were just now coming into learning what that band was, you know, yeah, yeah. that would just lead to other things. And it's not like I was trying to keep those people from being Nazis. I just didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so Maximum certainly took some criticisms from segments of, of the punk scene, you know, Big Brother, Little Brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since uh, day one, for, you know, in the radio show, everything before, you know, when they were doing the All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, everything. Maxim always took shit. Mm-hmm. So you came into this organization that was taking a lot of shit, and did you feel that any of it kind of like would reflect personally on you, or did, how did you feel about the criticisms that, that you were probably, you know, getting inundated with once you were kind of fully enfolded within the... Yeah, I mean, I had more common ground than, I think a lot of people didn't understand, like, going from leading edge and coming to maximum. You know, I even remember Pusshead calling me saying, don't, don't quit leading edge, keep doing leading edge, don't join, don't join maximum. And he was actually living at the maximum house at the time. He was friends with all those people, but to me, it actually did make... It made sense, and also I wanted a new challenge, and also I wanted to get the hell out of San Diego. And it was really just kind of a spontaneous thing, but everything they stood for, I was fine with, you know? It was really no problem. But I definitely had a different, a younger version of it, and probably a little bit different musical interests than, say, Tim Yo, you know? But there was, you know, definitely different politics. I mean, he was a, you know, 
But how would you younger. characterize his politics versus yours, it, it, generally? Well, he comes out of the 60s, you mm -hmm. know, and he was 20 years older and went through a lot of different things. And, you know, I think he was definitely more party, not party, joining party member socialist, but he had more those traditional leftist politics. But you say you know, leaning more socialist rather than anarchist or? Well, that was his whole thing. Like, he's socialist communist, you know, in theory, but he was too much of an anarchist to join any group. Mm -hmm. Right. Which made total sense. That's actually, and that's, for the most part, not verbatim, but that's a quote from Tim Yeo, and it totally did make sense, you know? Mm -hmm. And then kinda, where did you kind of fall into that? Uh, I mean, I didn't even time. have anything. You know, I didn't even know what any of it was. I was just a punk kid who didn't like cops. <laughs> you know, and it just, all, you know, we were, you know, I wasn't like, hadn't read any of those books or anything like that, you know, but I come out of this thing where like, kids putting on punk shows together made sense to me. You know, kids doing things together made sense to me. That whole thing, you know, it wasn't like... Mm -hmm. More of a practical ethos of yeah, the I mean, scene it, rather than the greater. And though it was parallel to, you know, you know, formulated political theories and stuff, but this was like a day-to-day -day thing. That's what made sense to me. So it wasn't a leap to go one way or the other, but I never, never was a socialist or communist. I always identified more with anti-authoritarian across the board and still do. But... And all the enemies that hated Maxim, I was all right mm -hmm. with what those were. And a lot of them were just like anything. And we got those, we got a good education like that in San Diego where people were giving us shit for things we didn't do. Because we were the young kids that didn't do drugs and liked other kind of bands and kind of skateboarded and did all this stuff. And, you know, Maxim got shit from people for being political or trying to do things or, you know, and because it was kind of a bigger organization, but it wasn't corrupt. Mm -hmm. You know, and then the bands that hated Maximum or whatever, you know, Maximum still gets shit to this day, you know, right. even from things like 20 years ago or 25 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah. People still talk shit and people still talk shit about Tim Yo, even though he's been dead a long time. Yeah. But all that stuff I was okay with, you know, but it was a lot of the good thing about Maximum is there was a lot of strong personalities and a lot of individuals that worked under that banner but still kept their own identity, plus it being one, you know, Tim Yo, Rue Schwartz, a lot of people come from the radio show were, you know, had been around a long time, but Jeff Bale, another person. But they all, you know, wasn't like one party, maximum party line, but they had strong personalities that stood up when they were doing things outside of the magazine, mm -hmm. you know? Was, it, was there ever friction within the magazine regarding, say, like certain columnists who would perhaps write things that were antithetical to the beliefs of some of the people working for it, like Michael Board or something like yeah. that, you know, who would write things that would be pretty fucking out there sometimes? Yeah, I love Michael Board. Yeah, 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 that always happened. There's columnists, there are big fights about letters, yeah, records that come in, what is punk, what wasn't punk, all those things. Man. I'm sure there still happen, you know, and, you know, who should be a columnist, who shouldn't, who should do this, who should do that, bands, rumor that this band did that, how do we handle that, letters upon letters upon letters that were worth printing, just always, constant, constant, and a lot of times, you know, like, Michael Board is a troublemaker, and he always pushed the limits, but it, we all had more in common with Michael Board than not, you know, mm -hmm. like, Tim Yo and Michael Board were friends, I, Michael Board, I love that dude, he's a sweet, smart dude, and I knew what he was doing, you know, and he was just stirring up shit, but he, smart dude and really loving dude. And a lot of the people that worked on the magazine brought in a little bit different point, gave that magazine a lot of variety. And they had a lot of freedom to do what they wanted to do, too. Yeah. You know? How long was your involvement with Maximum? It was really, you know, I mean, it was every day for a long time. And then I officially left the magazine a year after Tim Yo died. So that was like in 99. So it was, no, that was a long time then. Yeah. But those last years, I was doing a lot of other things, you know, and then I started 
Pressure.Press, which was a book publishing thing that started, um, was actually, Maxima helped fund it at the beginning, and then it broke off on its own. And that started like with Threat by Example in 1989. And then that was what I was focusing a lot of my time on. I was still peripherally working for the magazine, and even the Pressure Drop office was inside the Maximum House. Mm -hmm. And, um, but towards the end there, I was kind of, you know, not doing as much as other people, more just like outside trying to, I knew a lot of the people, but I wasn't doing a lot of the daily work. And then just after Tim Yo died, me and a couple other people, maybe Tim and Jen Mark, said we'd stay on long enough to kind of ensure the transition would happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then a year after, I just kind of officially left, took my stuff off, took my name off the official paperwork and stuff. Right. So talk about a little bit about Pressure Drop Press. What, what was the genesis of the idea of starting your own publishing company? And then I guess, the, you know, how did you come about to do Threat by Example? Yeah, I mean, there was people doing, like back then I really fetishized books because it was just an interesting way of, you know, coming out of punk where you see like someone did really something interesting with music, lyrics, fold out things, like a packaging. Not yeah, so like much the crass records or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was heavy handed, you know, heavy crass message, but something they're thinking about it in different ways. Booklets coming with things, you know, patches, whatever. It's like, I was really interested in that, but to me it was like interesting since I wasn't going to do a label or music. It's like books were really solid and trying to do books in a different way. That was definitely the concept. Like fanzines, trying to do fanzine in a different way. You'd get a fanzine with a big fold-out poster that turned into the cover, but it was all like interesting punk ideas. That was really, that was really amazing. And people were like research, who came out of the search and destroy fanzine and research books. They were um, doing. A, they had. They maybe had three or four or five books out, and they were like definitely in like that post-punk world art thing. But the way they did it and that they came out of that Search and Destroy, which was such an amazing fanzine. Bale and everybody that worked on that was like really inspiring. If not, I ripped them off in a lot of ways, but in a punk way, you know, yeah. like I wasn't really into what they were talking about. Modern primitives and- You didn't like, want to split your penis in half. <laughs> nah, I didn't want to negate it, you know? <laughs> but the, graphically, I was really like, you know, doing that kind of, they, you know, doing really books that looked different mm -hmm. and caring, you know, like taking fanzine culture, putting it in a, you know, perfect binding format and selling to people like, wow, that really is interesting to me. Yeah, I think it's hard to, it's almost hard to understand now how innovative that was because, was because the design has come along so far. Yeah. People kind of have it more within their means to do design like that. But I mean, I can recall when those things came out too, like they were very striking looking. Yeah, yeah just yeah. holding it was yeah. really like, you know, like, you, like when you see a record cover, you know, the record fetish thing or something, you know, there's always that kind of, and it was just, way of communicating ideas, not just graphically, that was a huge part of it, you know, but incorporating that into a book format and kind of fucking with things, but it didn't have to just be text, one thing after another, after another, after another, with a fancy cover on it. Mm -hmm. All the pages could be art, all the pages could be like, have a punk thing on it, you know, and that was good. And then another huge, huge influence was Cynthia Conley when she did Band in DC, because mm -hmm. we had met early on, she came out and visited soon after I moved to San Francisco and we became buds, and she was in the process of working on Bandit and Sea then or was going to and Cynthia I have to get full credit everything she does she does like five years before anybody else and she was on her own mission to do a book and do it this way and that was huge yeah and there was think, nothing else like that I don't think I mean, there no, that's no real Cynthia Conley yeah, Cynthia yeah. Conley is like that in so many ways and she never gets credit I mean people that know her give her credit but she was like she wasn't even trying to do it she just like oh this is what you do and bring people together and a bunch of 
women from the punk scene came together. It was mainly Cynthia Kahn, but other people putting all this photo together and doing a book and a nice looking book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was, nothing half-assed. This nothing half-assed, and she was book. in total control of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like, ah, oh, and that came out. I was just like, holy fuck, I can only imagine to do something like that. Not so much photos, but just like, I was, you know, it's like 100% punk. Everything in there was so fucking beautiful, crazy punk rock shit, but it was done beautifully. But not like a museum saying, like now a museum would do a beautiful punk book and everyone goes, oh, that's a nice coffee table book. This yeah. was like someone that was educated in the punk scene and but understood graphics and did things a little bit differently. It retained the vitality, which I think was really crucial. And the whole feeling of it and communicated in it, but it wasn't, it didn't have to be a shitty looking thing or something half-assed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was amazing. And that was like a huge influence. So Cynthia was a huge influence. In fact, she helped me on a lot of those books too later on, you know, but that was, I liked that idea. And I liked the idea of doing, bringing that zine idea of fucking with every page and doing things differently and putting different ideas that you would never see in a book, put them in a book format, mm-hmm. you know? So that's kind of like how Threat by Example came out of, you know? And were you doing all the design on that or was some of it done by, some of it was done by the individuals, right? The contributors? Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely did the hard formatting. I think some people did con- contributed artwork, mm-hmm. you know, like artist friends and they were, you know, free to do whatever they wanted to do, like four pages or something. But the whole format of the book was all me. Right. Um, so did you originally have the come up with the idea that you wanted to have individual contributors uh, you know that it wouldn't be like a book written by you or by a single individual but you yeah. wanted to have a could it no I'm a terrible you know, writer I'm like the worst writer in the world like I have crazy permanent writer's block mm-hmm. which is really ironic for someone that wanted to do books yeah I would think that I mean, not like a, in talking to you I would think that you would be able to write no. because you yeah. I'd it'd take me four hours to write one sentence <laughs> I'm being, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's just not my thing. And especially I'm very humbled by people that are writers mm-hmm. that can write and are really great writers, but I, I'm not, I can coming out of the fanzine world, interview people and talk to people about that. And that's where the idea of wanting to do books and document people's stories came from, right. you know, it's more like interviewing people, but there's no writing of mine. I, you know, it took me year, months just to write the introductions for each person. Mm-hmm. They were so hard. My friend Jason Traeger, who I did Leading Edge with, helped me write a lot of those because I couldn't even, I'm not a writer. You yeah. know, I can make things look, you know, do a graphic thing or interview somebody and talk about ideas. No problem. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I struggle with the writing thing. But it was, what came out of Threat by Example is hearing people's reasons why they wanted to be, how they got into punk and why they were still into punk and just sort of making, you know, talking about rebellion and lifestyle Mm-hmm. in the format of a book and that all came out of interviewing people you know and, and just doing the book format was something different how did you select the individuals that you wanted to have in the book I think I just made a list so it was like these are people that I think are doing interesting work or have a voice that I'd want to hear yeah and some of them I didn't know any of them no some of them I hadn't met a lot of them were just friends some of them were close friends that nobody knew they were like super quote-unquote well-known punk people and some people that nobody knew and to me like fuck it they're all the same mm-hmm. It was really super personal, you know, I mean, I think if you really dive into it, you realize that it is kind of very personal in the sense of nobody else would choose that group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there's some people in there that, you know, I lost touch with after, but they were really important to me at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was just a list. And I think all, of, except maybe two or three people took part in it. Just one day, one master list and 
hounding people till he did it. And did you then send a letter to these individuals and say, this is the, the premise of this yeah, project? A, and... I think I made a whole packet and stuff, you know, graphically and mm -hmm. posters and talked to what that general idea was, you know? Did you set certain parameters in terms of like length of writing or type of, you know? Probably, knowing my control side, mm -hmm. you know, but also very respectful for the people I was dealing with, you know, like a lot of these people are more than able to do things, you know, so. Right. But I wasn't going to do anything that I didn't like, you know, but. I think it was, yeah, it's mainly trying to be, talk about people, how they got into punk and why, you know, their own personal stories about being a rebel and why they continued to be a rebel. It wasn't, it didn't have to always have the theme of punk music or punk scene, but just these were people that were, you know, living outside of the norm and doing really amazing things. And you could tell they were going to keep going that way their whole life. And that yeah, was yeah. great. And it was coming out of the punk scene and that way, that's why it was important to document people that were just friends that were doing that and well-known people showing that everything can be done like that and that's mm -hmm. and the title that's where the title uh, titles are actually ripped off from noam chomsky i think uh, okay yeah by yeah. example like holy fuck that makes so much sense that's exactly what all these people are mm -hmm. yeah it's what everything is to me and that's what we did so yeah. and it was a positive reaction to the book upon publication mm-hmm the first printing a lot of people were pissed because there were so many typos in there that's right. <laughs> no, is, that, is that on you? No, of course. <laughs> it was so fucking embarrassing. There were so many typos. Not, okay, not for a book. Books don't have typos. Fanzines have typos. I learned that right away. Just like, encringed. Yeah, yeah. Because I was, I don't know, I was not kind of more casual with it than I should have been. Mm -hmm. The second printing, all typos were fixed. Everything was picked. And we did a lot more printing in the second version, but the very first version that was kind of even a, a friend printed that. It was like a different kind of cover and all this stuff. Yeah, the format, I have two different versions of the you book. You have the and one the, with the blue cover that's kind of more Yeah, it's like a little a, flimsier. Yeah, yeah, I have that. Yeah, and, yeah, that was and a local some, printer. some years later, I wound up getting another one. It was nicer, like. right? More professionally bound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, So the first version was more printed by a local printer, Mike Myro, who printed, who had a alternative printing press and he actually did that we did that we only did less than a thousand that first run and there was wow so it was kind of like it was still kind of like this growing it was still kind of a zine like uh -huh. you know even how we printed it and we tried to do it and it was kind of underground of trying to figure out how to make a book thing and i don't know if he'd ever done a book that thick but he was a really sweet dude and we did it and then the second printing was all professionally done at a book book printer and mm -hmm. no typos but very good wow um, but the reaction that was just a funny story. I remember oh, someone's name is spelled wrong in there. It's so, <laughs> it was so, I still cringe now, but it all got fixed and it was just a funny growing pain. But yeah, I, I think the reaction was good. You know, it's really unusual because it was just like, it wasn't like, there was like some people that nobody would know who they were and there's you know, weird art people and, but it all made sense to me. And so it was kind of like, I didn't know how it would go, but it, I never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. Didn't even think about it. I wasn't trying to please everybody or trying to get a group of people that everybody would like, you know, like the known people. Yeah. You know, I felt confident that these people are like, when they're unknown and known and everybody's in the same room together, it all makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it wound up working that way really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. For you didn't know half those people in there, right? Cause there was no, some, no, yeah. no, no. But I thought, I mean, even those who I don't know what the hell they do now, I think that their contributions were interesting. I mean, it's been a while since I read the book, but yeah. there are also other people that I thought were really fantastic. Uh, and you know, those kind of had a very lasting memory. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for me at the age that I read it, looking at adults, 
who had lived a life outside of the norm. I mean, almost exactly what your premise is was the effect that it had on me. I mean, and I can only speak for me. Yeah. But that was exactly what it did was you can live a life outside of the norm and actually live a life and you know have a creative process that is lasting and here are people who have done it who are significantly older than me and have not all taken the same route but have taken all kinds of routes but totally. but with an ethos yeah yeah you know, that subtle subtle common thread which was always kind of something that came in was you know I didn't really know it at the time but that's kind of what what's the most interesting to me like some of those people were more involved in punk than others, but you know, some of them were first generation, but they all had this thing that was going on, you know, and they were all had a lot more common ground. And I like that subtle common ground thing being documented. And also they all did live by example. Like none of those people were fucking frauds or half ass. Those people were brave motherfuckers and doing a lot of creative stuff, or they were just great smart asses, you know, or just yeah, really yeah. good friends, you know, <laughs> and uh, they weren't going to do something different, you know, right. and they probably couldn't, you know, at nope. certain point. they were yeah. wired that way. Yeah. So you followed that up with Sabotage in the American Workplace, right? Was there anything in between oh, yeah, that or was, was that the next? No, there was three books in between. What were the other three books? One was um, a John Yates project. Who was John Yates was a graphic artist that came out of, he worked for Alternative Tentacles. Oh, was that the No Record deal? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that was his project. He was talking about consumerism, all done in the format of a, in a record sleeve. And it was like really experimental, but very John Yates. You know, John Yates put that whole thing together. And then we did a Noam Chomsky book, a small Noam Chomsky book called Terrorizing the Neighborhood, which was a transcribed speech. Mm -hmm. And then we did a fourth book, was a local writer named Peter Plate, fictional political fiction. And then the last book was Sabotage in the Workplace, which was my other book that I did. Again, no writing, just editing. Right, right. So you want to explain for folks who might not have seen that, what is the premise behind that book? You know, kind of evident by the title, but yeah. you know, what did you want to do with that? It's just documenting people, documenting Americans taking matters into their own hands at, in the workplace. So it's just, again, another, that sort of common ground thing, documenting the subtle common ground that when people are, when Americans are faced with a situation at work they don't like, they usually take matters into their own hands. So it's documenting people doing this anywhere from cheating on the time clock to stopping assembly lines. Mm -hmm. And it's just basically saying that Americans from all walks of life, all different jobs, all different politics don't take shit at work and don't take shit from bosses and this is it was documenting their stories on what they do when they're faced with situations they didn't like yeah it, it always reminded me of kind of a book version of the song subvert by zounds you know where they're actually <laughs> giving concrete examples of here's what you can yeah. do and yeah. it was heavily influenced by studs turkle's book working which was mm -hmm. like came out in the 70s which was amazing i mean granted because that was you know that just people talking about their lives and their jobs and some of them was really inspiring some of it was grim yeah yeah deadly depressing deadly depressing but very american mm -hmm. you know and this was you know but this was like trying to interview like people that work in a mail room as far as in bus drivers and assembly lines and everyone doing it and from all walks of life someone in their 50s being a secretary some young kid and it was really interesting and it was and again it was focused on the subtle things it wasn't like you know smash the assembly line and everyone walking out with you know raised fists mm -hmm. there's definitely people like that in there because they were part of the american workforce but there was also very subtle things where people were just doing very subtle things but it was something that was they were acting on their dissatisfaction mm -hmm. and, and i guess it made them maybe feel like that they had some sense of power like some some or revenge or they're passing time or boredom mm -hmm. is all different types of things you know yeah. but they were doing it and i thought that was real interesting and i just like that American 
I like that American rebellion, even because Americans are so diverse and half these people would never get along with each other. I wouldn't even like, I didn't even like a lot of those people when well, I was interviewing them. Who are these people? How did you come upon these folks and then kind of gather their voices in to do this thing? It was like friends of, I made a list of all the jobs I could think of. Right. And then just started calling friends of friends like, oh, do you have an uncle that's an auto mechanic? Or I know this guy that's a taxi driver. And it went it was a lot like that because this was way pre-internet. So it was really hard to track people down. Yeah, yeah. Then interview people and get them to tell the stories. You know, a lot of times it was just interviewing somebody talking about their job because it was never like, tell me, you know, I'm doing this book about, you know, sabotage. Tell me your sabotage story. It was, it was like, okay, you're a postal delivery person. Tell me about your job. Tell me what you like about it and what you don't like about it. And when we talk about the part you don't like about it, how do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. That's where the stories came out. Right, right. So did they know that the, the, you know, the project was going to be called Sabotage? No. Okay. But and, I, was, and you I, told them I, was, I told them I was documenting, you know, so it's like I explained the premise of the book and it was like dissatisfaction and how people did it. And people were all, you know, were all right with it. I didn't use the word sabotage because it was too misunderstood. That's yeah, why yeah. it had such a strong subtitle. Mm -hmm. Anecdotes of, what was it? Just, it's been a while since yeah. I said that. <laughs> Fuck. Come on, you remember that thing? It was really clever and really smart. And it probably had a typo in it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I didn't use the word sabotage, but it's mainly just talking about worker dissatisfaction and how people took matters in their own hands. And people opened up and told their stories, but it was really hard to get some of, some of the stories, and especially trying to get them from all different parts of the country now. I mean, now it'd be a thousand times easier because of oh, the internet yeah. you know there you're writing letters and doing phone calls and the book got written up in the LA Times before someone, some LA Times writer heard about the idea and they wrote an article about it before the book was out that helped mm -hmm. I put ads in papers asking for people like hey are you a stewardess I want to talk to you about work yeah and would you be doing audio recordings that you would then cassette tape cassette tape right and then and have transcribe. transcribe right? yeah and then you know transcribe them in a way that made them sound really good. I mean, that book was tightly edited because, mm -hmm. you know, again, I didn't write anything. It was just people's stories, but, you know, a lot of the people had never been interviewed before, so they went all over the place. So it was very edited to get the story, you know, short and concise. And then we edited out millions of stories that didn't make the final cut because we could only have so many in there. You know, I was just trying to get people, get the point across that there was a lot of diverse people from all types of backgrounds that were doing this thing. Yeah, yeah. And that just came out of working shitty jobs. I was working, I mean, just like what I wrote in the introduction in that book, it just came out of from working in a mailroom for a financial magazine. And I saw people from all levels of the company bummed about this company and how they took matters in their own hands. We were at the bottom of the totem pole, mm -hmm. sitting in this mailroom, and I was just watching people, what they would do. And it wasn't like a scam place. It was just super normal. Yeah. And I was just like watching like the stockbrokers or guys that handle the stockbroker articles for this magazine would do certain things. We would do certain things. Bosses would do certain things. I get going, oh my God, this is so funny. Because I was always, I never really had a lot of straight jobs, but that one was like a very straight world kind of thing. And that's where the idea came from. And just, and then true stories about people in their own words. And I also knew that everybody had a story. Mm -hmm. Just trying to get people to do, come out in their own way to talk about that story. Yeah, without, get them to feel comfortable, really. And even to understand what we're trying to get at, you know, without, you know, fighting the concept of it or denying it, you know, it just, mm -hmm. it was, but I still think that's true all the time, you know, but yeah, it was, it took a while to get all those stories out, you know. Yeah, you talk about the people at the bottom of the totem pole, and I imagine like little termites eating at the totem pole, like they might not eat all the way through <laughs> it, but they're, they're boring, they're making little burrows into that thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's, its integrity is wavering a bit. Yeah, and I think what was really interesting about that book is 
not so much the individual stories, but the overall idea. Mm -hmm. I think that's what was the strongest part of it. You know, some of the stories were good, some were so-so. I mean, it was really hard. You know, I'm always skeptical of past projects, but you know, we could have done a lot more, getting more diverse people and stuff. But the overall theme or the message it communicated was strong in my ideas, and it, it accomplished what I wanted it to do. And that. That book just took off because of that, and I just thought it's because people can identify with that. It wasn't like they didn't have to like rally behind the message; they could identify with the people in the book. Right? It's not politically affiliated. No, yeah, not at all. Not at all. Like I said, all those people were really diverse, and I had not a lot in common other than all of us had to work for, in America to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And some were, you know, all different classes, all different pay scales. But it was pretty interesting that way. Right. And then that was it for the, I mean, you ceased publishing after that yeah. book. Um, did you continue operating the, the press in terms of like keeping the books in print or, and why did you decide then that that was yeah, going mean, to be it? Yeah, I mean, Sabotage took on a life of its own. That lasted a long time. That just kept selling and selling. And I was doing like, you know, we didn't do any press for it really. And I was mm -hmm. doing interviews for a year talking about that book and it was getting reviewed in every magazine in the world. We were like, maybe send out a review copy, but then it gets a write-up in magazines and we weren't even trying. I didn't even know what I was doing because mm -hmm. we were just came from a completely different world, you know? And I didn't really have much connection to establish printing presses or publishers and how they did things. I just was kind of making it up and it made sense, you know? And it, but that book had a life of its own. And after that whole thing, it just kind of reached a point where like, okay, I'm done. Do you feel like you had said yeah. all that you want? Okay. Yeah, and it... <laughs> Could have been two years after. I mean, yeah, it was going on and on and on. It wasn't in a bad way. It was just like, I think it reached a point where like, okay, I've done as much and the interviews were dying out. And I think other people were like, oh, you should do a second volume, which would have been easier at that time. Cause you know, we had the first one out, but I thought, no, it's time for somebody else to talk about this in another way, in a different kind of book. Mm -hmm. This isn't my thing. I think this can be a trigger. I think we did a we, you know, I did as best we could at the time and maybe someone else would do it because it was never about me and my stories and my publishing things. The only reason why I was doing books is because the internet hadn't been invented yet in my world, mm -hmm. you know? You know, it just books was the best format to do it and now I would never do a book. Why? Because it'd be easier to have, find people and circulate that type of stories free on the internet. Mm -hmm. That'd make more sense to you me You don't now. find an appeal in the aesthetic of having a physical... I still like that, but... No, printing and shipping books is insane to yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Even though I still understand why people publish books and and I still like the fetish of them, but information, that was more about the information. And graphically, you could do interesting things and right. it'd be more interesting to have the ideas circulate really easy and no one had to buy it, you know? Right. That would be kind of a beautiful concept, you know? So what happened to Pressure Drop? I mean, did you stop? Uh, and then where, where does that leave the things that you created as pressure job. I mean, those books are not in print anymore, right? No, nothing's in print. Um, They're on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, 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 I've seen that some of those fetch a pretty good amount of money. Uh, <laughs> no, right? And, Where's those royalties? <laughs> uh, well, would you ever want to do anything with those? I mean, do you really want them to just lay dead and become collector's items as they are now? I can't. I can't control that, you know. I mean, I mean, if you consider doing an, an e version of them, or you know, it'd be nice to do an publisher e wanted to pick It'd be them nice up. to do an e version of Sabotage, but it's also of its time, you know. I do mean, you think it's that that lodged in a in a time? I mean, yeah. I don't think the message is, but I think the 
content of that book is. But do you think that the workplace has completely changed? Those jobs are out of date. Even though people still have those jobs, there's a million new jobs. The economy structure is changing so much that to me, it's more interesting to talk about new things. You know, like now you, your boss is 25 years old and he's a millionaire. <laughs> right. It's not some old dude with a golf shirt, you know, mm -hmm. like it's like 60 years old. That's what we were dealing with back then. Right. Now it's a 25 year old guy that had still an asshole, just like the 60 year old dude, <laughs> right. but that's what you're battling, <laughs> you know, yeah. whole different world, you know, mm -hmm. at least in the Bay area, you know, whole different yeah. world. So yeah, the message is great, but you know, that book came out in 92. That's a long, long time. But people still read the studs. Terkel books are like Aikenfield or something like that, where they they're like, you know, portraits of people, how they lived at a particular time and how they dealt with their time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think that the, that the passage of time invalidates those people. I didn't say that. Well, I know you're not saying <laughs> that either. Um, I, I don't like running publishing companies. I, it was very expensive, very, I don't mind doing the hard work, but it just kind of stopped making sense. You know, like we, even though we didn't sell our books for a lot of money, and you know, publishing world's kind of corrupt and stuff. Now information is circulated in a different way, and I'm more about the ideas than the actual artifact. Mm -hmm. you know? But what about a uh, threat? Like, what, is that something that you would want to see in, in an e-form, uh, or, or in some form? Some ways, in some ways not. I mean, like, not every old punk fanzine from 1982 should be reprinted. Not everyone, but some of them. Is like maybe, the Touch maybe. and Go book that came. I mean, there's been, you know, like Bazillion Points. I don't know if you've seen that. Publisher has taken these old fanzines and compiled these things. The quality varies. But I think that the writing in something like that book is, is far superior to like some dumb interview with like the circle jerks from <laughs> 1984. Know. It's like, yeah. dude, what bands do you like, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's never, it's never crossed my mind. It's not like I ignored it and there's no shame. It just, I think it did its thing. And I don't... I, I You've never been approached with anyone saying, you know, no. I'd like to see this no. back into print? There'd be, if someone credible that I really liked and wanted to do it in a format that was interesting and do it in a ebook format for lack of a better term that would be interesting to me i would never publish or tell somebody they could print a version a printed version of it it's just i'm just not into the printed book world you know i mean not for my own stuff i'd rather be an ebook where people can get it and cheaply and quick mm -hmm. and that would be more interesting to me but nobody's ever approached me and also I'm, you know i control things i'm very controlling in the sense like pricing and how it is and how it's handled you know it's I'm very protective of those things, but you know, they were from a long time ago, you know? I mean, someone came up, you know, someone wants to do like a best of leading edge book. You know, we did five, five issues of our family and we were kids and I was like, nah, we're not gonna do that. It's just doesn't, I don't know. It's just a weird thing. And it's just like, just because it's old and someone wants to put it all in one format, doesn't mean that's the right thing to do. People can still find these things. And I, I like when things are free and archived. I think that's really important, but doing published things, it's not always interested. And I'm seriously, haven't been that, haven't gotten that more offers. The Sabotage book's been bootlegged more than it's been officially. Oh, it has been bootlegged? It's been bootlegged twice. Oh, wow. Out of where? Out of the, the Italy, US I think, somewhere. I, what the hell did the, what is Italy? Anything have? goes. Is it in Italian? Yeah. Oh, wow. And I think they did their own edited version. Then there's a German version that's kind of a bootleg. Yeah. You have copies of these? I don't have the Italian one. I just saw it in catalog and I was trying to track it down. I was having one of my friends track it down. It really pissed me off. You know, even though it, bootlegging is kind of part of the whole punk culture. I thought it was pretty yeah. funny, but it was just like they were making money off of it. And it was like a university press, whatever that means in Italian. I don't know, but it was just like they did it. And they were saying, I don't think they, my name was even on it. I think they just <laughs> took the title. I was like, wow. 
nice move. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, so to answer your question, very long answer. Yeah, if someone that I like did it, you know, it'd be good, but I, I personally have no time to do it or that much interest in doing it, you know, and I'm still very proud of those things, but they're from a long time ago. I'd be more interested if someone did a newer version of the subject of sabotage right now. Mm -hmm. That would be really great. But I guess a lot of blogs probably talk about this stuff. There's so many workplace blogs. Yeah. It's so easy to read stories. Mm -hmm. Like you could do a Google search right now and find 500 stories. It's probably people. a podcast entirely devoted. You know what? Yeah. It's totally true. And that's yeah. what's really great. Back then there was nothing. You know, there's yeah, a couple yeah. fanzines that were kind of political underground magazines, you know, that talked a lot about workplace politics, but not in the same way that where I was coming from with these true stories. But, you know, now it's everywhere. And that's great. You know, that's mm -hmm. good. So, yeah. And all the other stuff, no, it all kind of served its time, you know? Okay. So I guess we'll move kind of into the present and sort of begin to wrap the thing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what is it that you, you do now, and do you still retain some, some connection to punk? Yeah. Okay. Now I design and build furniture and interior architecture, and that's something I've all been involved in ever since I was a little kid. Like one of my first jobs was working at an architectural firm. So it always kind of went parallel with punk, even though I didn't, I stopped doing design work or doing, being involved in that world when I moved in to San Francisco mm -hmm. in 85 and then started up till maybe 10 years ago, just was blanked out. You know, I was just really involved with music and doing that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it always kind of made sense to me, even though design is very aesthetic and stuff, but you know, I run my own business, no boss. Right. Anybody good. that works with me, you know, we're all independent Sabotage. contractors. Everybody right. takes care of themselves. Make sure everybody gets paid. It's a very nice, loose-knit people, you know, group of individuals that come together and make things happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I come, you know, it's really weird. It was a really, you know, you come out of the punk scene and then you're, in some ways, I have to deal with business people, which I'm not really into in right. big companies and stuff, you know, and, but... I come with a different perspective, and I think in some ways people like that I have that perspective. Other ways they want nothing to do with me, and we can't even speak the same language, which is fair enough. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. it doesn't bother me. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really happy. You know what I'm doing and doing the design thing. But it to me, it not to say I do punk rock furniture. <laughs> it's not like punk rock. You know, it's not like I'm saying this is punk. But yeah, everything punk was my education. I never went to college. Barely graduated high school. Mm -hmm. I've always done everything on my own with the help of friends, family, everything, you know, being that. And um, that's very punk. And it's doing your own thing is very punk, you know, mm -hmm. just kind of unheard of. And the way I do things is like, it seems really hard and doesn't make any sense because it's just the direct opposite of the way the business world is, you know, which okay. is, has nothing to do with punk, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's just like, so different and it's yeah, always, you managed to sort of successfully navigate through those waters kind of operating under your own yeah I don't have a choice that's the only way I'm going to do it you know mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes you know just you know you like want credibility you like you want everybody to be responsible for their own thing and not with the people I work with but a couple peripheral people you partner up with a fabricator and you're like the fuck why are they doing why are they being such fucking assholes and why are they fucking up and not giving a shit why are they just taking money and doing shitty work? It's like, oh, business, mm -hmm. money. Now, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't really know much about the world in which yeah. you move it, but, but in dealing with, say, like the fabrication of the product, are, are there ethical concerns that wind up coming to you in terms of the means of production or the sourcing of the materials? I mean, I don't know how much of that yeah, because it's I mean, kind of alien to me. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I, it's like making anything. You want it to be as best as you can do. 
I'm not into making things for the sake of making things to make money off of them. Money's a factor of it because it's a business, but you know, we like, it's like doing a fanzine. You want to, you just want to have that comfortable feeling inside of you when you're 15 years old. Like I did a fanzine. This is what I want to do. This is it. Now I'm making this table and it's really, I like the way it was made. There was no real bullshit in there. Like people that worked on it, got paid. The client got what they wanted. The quality is really nice. Yeah. It's all kind of responsible Mm -hmm. and I can, I'm all right with it, you know, and I like the design. It's challenging. It's doing something totally different. You know, it's just like, like, you know, you can turn down commissions because everybody wants like, hey, can you design a table that looks like this? And it's like, dude, I'm not that guy. Not that you have to like take one of my designs and say everything, you know, like I don't dictate what people have to have, but it's, I like that collaboration where we create something from scratch mm-hmm. and we're not trying to copy anybody and we're always trying to do something different and repeat, not repeat ourselves and always looking at new materials and new ways of doing it. So yeah. It's very peripheral and it's very personal. I don't really ever put it under the guise of punk rock, but yeah, to me, my punk rock education <laughs> is yeah. there. That's it. There's no other education other than, you know, dealing with people in the real world, but it's, it's all makes, all makes perfect sense to me. Right. You know, how much is the space that you live in a reflection of the inside of your brain? it almost appears like you own nothing I mean as you live in a big white I mean people can't see that obviously but it's very minimal I mean is, is this the inside of this no I'm not saying your brain's minimal but like <laughs> is that what you that's again the that. desire for this like kind of like minimalism in I mean unless there's like up there there's like three million so books shit. or something yeah like but like looking down here you live in a very big open white space with very like, few things and lots of is, light I don't know almost anyone that lives that way so I'm curious how that is like is that the inside of the Sprouse no I mean I mean I you know I don't own a lot of things I don't you know and I also like getting rid of things like it makes more sense for me to have mp3s as opposed to cds or records you know I gave away my record collection in 85 when I moved up here because I was gonna have access to the Max Rock and Roll Library. So why did I need anything? So I give it all away. Then CDs are like the grossest thing in the world. MP3s that you can play anytime you want make total sense to me. It's like one less thing to look at, but you still have the music. I don't need to look at things. It must be very Books. easy for you to move from one place to yeah, another. Yeah, my house also burned down in the 90s, so I lost uh. everything. <laughs> That's kind of the beginning of minimalism. Like all, every punk rock letter I ever had, I saved. Family thing, everything burned in 92. Oof, why, so I what happened there? Just this heater, um, malfunction, wiring, caught on fire, burned our whole place. Nobody was hurt, but I came home and saw that my house had burned down and I moved with a shoebox. No, a shoebox full of ashes? <laughs> a shoebox full of just very little, few things that didn't burn and that was yeah. it. And also, I don't know, I'm just not into, I don't know. I like open space and I like light. I mean, and pretty much all I do is work on laptop and phone and sketchbook. Man. so compact yeah yeah but it's like it looks crazy when people see my world but to me it makes sense like you know i'm the guy that can look at a long blank wall and go oh that's really beautiful because i like how the light hits it and stuff yeah you know, i don't need a logic i want to live inside of your brain i'd have so much left it's super confusing and crowded here but my world <laughs> looks better you know yeah, there's always i'd have a couple more things here but i always find out i'm getting stuff away or getting rid of stuff yeah i don't know why i just i don't know it just seems very I like the clean lines, but yeah, you know, yeah, it looks kind of brutal, huh? There's not a lot of stuff. Delightful <laughs> dog named Grady. Yeah, <laughs> fuck that toy up since we got here. Grady, he makes a mess, man. This is basically his playhouse. You know, <laughs> that's right. Uh, all right, one last question. This is kind of a weird one. Once upon a time, someone gave me a button. 
uh, with your head on it. Chick magnet? Chick magnet. What the fuck? That well, is a good story. Yeah, I'd like to know about the chick magnet. That still has a life. That's from a long time ago. I still ago. have that button. You have that button? I do have that button, yeah. Something. And they have shirts, too. Oh, I never saw the shirt. Um, yeah, why is this exist? Oh, so there's a woman that I met through Gilman called Jennifer Cobb, who grew up in the East Bay here and met her. She started coming to punk shows at Gilman, and we kind of became friends. And we used to play practical jokes on each other a long time ago. And I pulled some practical joke on her, made a fly. I don't really remember. I think it was something I made a flyer and posted it around her neighborhood with her face on it. It was like, I was like all proud of myself. And I just like, oh, I got Jennifer so bad. Or put stickers on her car. It was something like that. But it was like something that caught her off guard. But then I realized never fuck with Jennifer Cobb. So this is like at Gilman, a Fugazi show, very one of the early Fugazi shows afternoon show i come into the show and it's like way before the band was playing or anything you know it's just like coming in there's still people and i walk in and almost everybody in gilman was wearing martin sprouse chick magnet shirt with a really terrible <laughs> photo of me and everyone was deadpanning it like nobody was acknowledging that they were wearing these shirts. And I just walk in, I go, what the fuck? It was like a being John Malkovich kind of scene, like where you're just like totally thrown off and you couldn't really figure out what was going on. And everybody was in character like, hey, what's up? I think Ian had a button on or he just goes, hey, what's going on? And everyone was doing that to me and they wouldn't let up. And I just like, holy fucking nobody took off the shirts. And Jennifer destroyed me. And that thing kept going on a life of its own. Where People still, how the fuck did you get one of those buttons? <laughs> I, one, of, one of my friends, I used to come here fairly often throughout the 90s, so I don't oh. remember who gave it to me. It was like, you know, Devin Moore for somebody, but as somebody God. had one. She yeah. did it so well. She screened those shirts. She made them. She made shirts and it buttons. It cost a lot of money to make she that She didn't many. care. She wanted to destroy me, and she did. And I've just like been half the man I was before then. I'm just like, hi, Jennifer. Like, I will never mess with her, and it's still going on to this day. But they still make these things? Or no, what? no. They're oh. still around. I don't know yeah. what, but it was like the best revenge. I should have worn my button over when I came over. It was the best. There's stuff on Facebook where they're still, and it still fucks with me. Like, it just looks... It's like, hmm. Wow, she played the long game. <laughs> she played the long game and she yeah. goes, I just never want this guy to ever mess with me again. And she, I mean, she wasn't angry with you, right? I mean, it was, no, she it just meant she had me. She, yeah, yeah, she wasn't, we weren't enemies. We were like friends, but she just took it way further than I ever could. That is very impressive. It's beautiful. It's the best, one of the better jokes that someone makes. Definitely the best joke that has that long-term thing. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Because people still, close friends of mine still wear that shirt sometime or have the button. I'm just like, really? What was that, like 20 years ago or something, you know? I mean, it's just like that weird face. I don't even know where she got that photo, but yeah, that's Jennifer Cobb getting sweet revenge for me putting a sticker on her car or something, and she took it a thousand times further. But I still don't know how she got everybody at Gilman to be in character. Like, she orchestrated She's kind of a shy person. She orchestrated it where everybody, I think everybody wanted to get revenge on me yeah. and fuck with me because they're all just like pretending they weren't wearing the shirts. But people didn't harbor animosity towards you. Probably, no, right? no, it's just I mean, a it perfect just, practical yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, no. it's just so good that everybody just loved the concept. It was so, it was just all in good fun, but really, really good fun, you know, at my expense. And I, I was so humbled when I saw the shirt. I was like, wow, that's a really good joke. I mean, I was laughing my ass off, but it just kept going on and on and on and on. Do you have a shirt of your own face no. now? I don't even have a button. I don't oh, have anything. It's too bad. 
Yeah, but it was really well done. So Jennifer Cobb, still to this day, we're friends, but still to this day, I will never fuck with her. And that her joke yeah, lives on forever. <laughs> no. Fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank um, you.